Please take your Bible and turn to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, verse 7. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, if you raise your hand, our ushers would be happy to bring you one. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, uh, you can find this passage on page 189. Judges chapter 3, verse 7. This is what Holy Scripture says. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tri tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the, his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from, from God for you. And he rose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, 
Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Joshua, thank you for writing us uh, a tune to sing Anne Steele's poem. I don't know if you know Anne Steele. Uh, she wrote some excellent poetry. And uh, this is one of those poems that has been set to hymns. And it's a joy to sing it again. We haven't sung it in some time. It was one of those songs that kind of evaporated during COVID. So uh, we're trying to get all our songs back. And it was a joy to sing with you uh, a particularly uh, unique hymn that is calling on you, if you don't know Christ yet, to no longer delay. Did you note that last, last verse there? Dear Savior, draw reluctant hearts. And I would pray that if you've been feeling reluctant to come all the way to Jesus, that maybe singing that, or maybe God in answer to our prayer of singing that, or maybe in response to God's word as, that, as it is preached, uh, would draw that reluctant heart of yours to trust on Christ alone for salvation. I need to know if there are any 13, 12, 13, 14-year-old boys in this room. If you are like 12, 13, 14-year-old boy, just raise a hand. Okay, like one? Uh, okay, uh, two. Oh, I got two. All right, well, for those of you two, <laughs> I thought there'd be many more, uh, of you 12, 13, 14-year-old boys, I'm about to tell you something I did when I, I don't remember exactly what age I was, but this is a story that I'm, in part, telling to you and telling you, don't do this. All right? <clears throat> so when I was somewhere around 12, 13, 14 years old, I had a couple of friends, and we decided it would be a great idea to steal wood from a neighbor in order to build a tree fort. We needed the tree fort. It was obvious we needed to find wood somewhere. We had no money. And so stealing seemed like a really good idea. And we stole the wood. It was wood pallets. We stole a couple pallets. So we took them apart. We built the fort. And like, just like poetry, like putting in the last nail, along comes my neighbor. And he is not pleased. 
And he proceeds to begin yelling and cussing us out. And I'd never really been in a situation like that before. And so we come down from our tree fort and he's yelling. He says, where are your parents? And marches us up. We're at the cottage. And so my mom and my aunt are sitting in the porch. And um, my aunt never gets out of, this is my chain-smoking, poodle-holding, chase-lounge-sitting aunt, uh, never gets out of her lounge, uh, but she eventually just says to the man, well, you can stop now. Um, It's time for you to go home, and the boys will get your wood back to you later this afternoon. And and that guy just kind of stopped, and he turned around, and he left. And we took the wood back to him, and it was all over. My aunt was a very surprising and unlikely deliverer on the day of our theft. (laughs) I was just not expecting my aunt to come through for me. The whole book of Judges is kind of a, a, a bunch of little episodes of unlikely deliverers. They're not the kind of people that you would expect to be the hero of the story, and they don't use the means nor the tools that you would expect a great deliverer to use. And we're going to look at three of them this morning. The first one of these is Othniel, who I'm calling a good man who defeated an evil invader. So let's just jump right into verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. They forgot Yahweh, their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So we've said this before, um, many different versions of Baal and Asherah, uh, and they're just picking it all up. So this is the cycle of judges. This is what happens over and over again. Israel forgets their God, Yahweh, does evil, and begins to serve false gods, idols. Yahweh puts up with that for a certain amount of time and then he brings punishment and he punishes Israel using other nations, whether that's people groups that live in the promised land or as we'll see today, some external nations. And because of this punishment, Israel cries out, they moan and they groan and then Yahweh being Yahweh sends a judge, he sends a deliverer, he sends a savior. So here we are, uh, very early in the time in the promised land, Israel's forgotten Yahweh, Israel's turned to their idols, and we learned last week, idolatry always leads to what? Misery. It always leads to misery. And for Israel, some of that misery misery, um, is the result of God's active opposition against them. So in this case, Yahweh sends along a dude named Cushan Rishathayim, of Mesopotamia. I know you're just dying to say that. Shall we try? Here we go. Kushan Rishathayim. Okay, something like that. Verse 8. Therefore the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Kushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Kushan Rishathayim eight years. Now, Kushan Rishathayim means something. It, it actually means uh, king of double evil, king of evil, evil. So he's the twice as evil king. And that, that's important because if you saw that in verse 7, God is punishing evil Israel. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. He's punishing evil Israel with the twice as evil dictator, verse 8. How long ago did you come to Canada? Lots of people here are new to Canada. Anybody come within like eight years? Yeah. And so imagine if you were in Canada and for the last eight years, uh, 
you are living under an evil foreign dictator. Eight years is a long time to suffer under that kind of oppression. And we're not told everything that the king of Mesopotamia did. We're just told his name twice as evil. That gives you a pretty good idea that it was bad. So that's Cushan Rishathaim. Let's look at the other character in this story, the, the judge, the deliverer, Othniel. Now, there's a lot of questions in this short paragraph that are not answered, but I think the, the, the judges begin with Othniel because of his character, because of who he is. He kind of like sets the, the standard, a godly man doing a godly work. And frankly, things just get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse as we go along. So we've met Othniel before, uh, but let, let's look at verse 9. When the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, Yahweh raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. That, that jog your memory? When the spirit of Yahweh was upon him and he judged Israel, he went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand, Othniel's hand, prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And that's it. That's all we know. But there's a whole lot here. Because first you've got to look at Othniel. Who was Othniel? We met him back in chapter 1. You can turn back there. Maybe just cast your eyes down the page, you, you'll be reminded he's the nephew of Caleb, who was Caleb, one of only two of the 12 spies, him and Joshua, who came back and said, yeah, let's go into the promised land. God's going to bring deliverance. We have faith. The 10 spies said no. Results in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Caleb and Joshua, the only two of that generation to go into the promised land. Caleb takes his city and then he says, there's Debir over there, D-E-B-I-R. Who will go and take that city for me? If you take it, you get my lovely daughter as your wife. So that's who this, that, that was Othniel. That's what he did. This whole family is held up before you as kind of model citizens. They are doing what everybody should be doing. Attempting great things for the Lord, expecting great things and great deliverances from God. And parents, I would just want to take a moment to say to you, never underestimate the influence of a godly family. Don't underestimate. Some of you got little kids and you're like pulling your hair out just trying to get people to school in the morning and I understand. Life is complex and it is busy. But I would suggest to you that your personal godliness is going to be of much longer lasting value to your children then whatever home you live in or whatever money you leave them, what's going to really matter to them is your faithful godliness to the end. And that will have far more impact upon them than you can probably see. Do you pray now for your children's salvation? Um, coming to Grace Fellowship Church will not save your children. Putting them in Christian school will not save your children. Homeschooling will not save your children. Putting them in public school will not condemn your children to hell forever. The only thing that's going to save your children is God. God has to do the work. I hope you're praying for the salvation of your children. We pray for the salvation of your children. Isn't it a kindness of God when you look around the room and see all the answered prayers? That's not because of us. That's the sweetness of the Lord's mercy. Some of us are still waiting for God to save our children. And so we will continue to pray. 
as you seek to live a, a godly life, you are doing so much for your family. Don't you want your kids to be proud? Like, what, what, don't, don't you love it? Maybe this has happened. I know it's happened to some of you. You, you start searching into your family history and you find out your great-great-grandfather was this, this godly man. And do you, ever, just, do you ever stop to wonder, like, I might be saved because my great-great-grandfather who never knew me prayed for me? Othniel, he comes from good stock. And he married into good stock. And by all, by all accounts, this man lived a, a deliberate, God-fearing, I'll go to war if I have to kind of life. Uh, kind of the greatest generation of Israel. And, and from his youth into old age, he's an old man now when he's doing this. He's, he's, I don't know his exact age, I forgot to check, but he's got to be like close to 80, pushing 80, kind of like Uncle Caleb was. So he's just a man of character, a man of faith, a man of godliness. And the other thing about him is that He's been called of the Lord to do this. Look at verse 10. The spirit of Yahweh was upon him. He judged Israel. He went out to war and Yahweh gave Cushan Rishathaim into his hand. So the spirit of Yahweh was upon him. He's, he's not acting independently of God. God's Holy Spirit was upon him as a special anointing of God, as that's the way the spirit worked in the older covenant. And it was Yahweh who gave the king twice as evil into Othniel's hand. And in that sense, Othniel is the model judge. He's the model deliverer. He did the Lord's work in the Lord's way with the Lord's strength for the Lord's glory. And brother, sister, he's not calling you to be a judge. That season in, in history is over, but he is calling you to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, in the Lord's strength for the Lord's glory. We don't raise armies, but we do fight in a spiritual war. We've got similar goals to what Othniel's goal was. If, if in a sense, what do we want? We want a peaceful land in which to do the work of the ministry which God has called us to. Have you thought about what Paul wrote to Timothy? First of all then, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, all kinds of people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, position, positions of authority, in order that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So just like Othniel in Israel, we Christians in Canada want to be godly and dignified in order to live these peaceful and quiet lives in our land. Why? So we can amass a fortune and, and live self-satisfied lives? Not at all. So we can carry out the proclamation of the gospel. You have been given a commission. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, take this news, bring it to all the nations. It is very difficult to preach Christ, to plant churches, to advance his kingdom on earth, when you're hiding from your persecutors, or even worse, when you're being killed for your faith. So the peaceful, quiet life that we hope for is so we can do all the things God commands us to do, not so we can have two cottages and a boat. But notice the way the Christian fights this battle. We fight it in prayer. 
all kinds of prayers for all kinds of kings, all kinds of rulers, so we can have, we can, we can be all kinds of godly. <laughs> Often you'll gather in an army, we gather on Sunday nights to pray. You don't get saved by attending a prayer meeting. It's not your way to earn salvation. But why would we, why would we expect anyone to get saved if we don't have a prayer meeting? If we're not actually praying together for God to work. God's kingdom will advance if his people pray. But there's always Peters in the land who are lopping off people's ears with a sword. <laughs> That's not our way. Our way is to pray. You know, I'm, I'm slightly amused because if you read any history, you realize every single generation says, this is the worst the world has ever been. <laughs> Um, Richard Sibbs, writing in 1635, times are bad. God is good. Yeah, times are bad. God is good. It was true in Richard Sibbs' day, and it's true in our day. Do you pray for your politicians? Do you pray for your rulers, your kings? Or just insult them? I wonder if you had an opportunity to speak to the prime minister, would you yell in his face or would you approach him like Paul approached King Agrippa? I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I may speak. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Would that we took every opportunity to adorn the gospel so well. Righteous Christians must learn to minister in ways that match the terms of their covenant, just as righteous Othniel ministered in ways that matched the terms of his covenant. And so, verse 11, the land had rest 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And friends, just like Othniel, you will die unless the Lord comes first. And will it be said of you, he lived an upright and righteous life. He did his part through prayer to bring the land rest. That's Othniel. Number two is Ehud. Ehud, I'm calling a convicted man. By this, I mean a man that has conviction, is, is acting upon it. A convicted man who defeated a greedy oppressor. Now, the history of Ehud and his great deliverance begins with the same old story for Israel. Verse 12, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they'd done what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He, this is Eglon, gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, two foreign nations, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Now notice the same pattern. Israel did what was evil. God sends a foreign nation to punish them. Israel suffers under the hand of that enemy. Israel cries out. Now in this case, uh, what's his name? Uh, Eglon, thank you. <laughs> Eglon, the king of uh, Moab, gets a couple of other nations, Ammon and Amalek. These are surrounding nations, a little south and, and, and north. Uh, so 
you get all three together and you gang up on Israel. And then Eglon, uh, king of Moab, appoints himself sort of the grand poobah of the promised land, reigning from what's called here uh, the city of Palms. It's likely a partially rebuilt Jericho. And let's see what happened. Verse 15. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Remember that. The people of Israel sent tribute, we'll talk about that in a moment, by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. That's about like a, a foot to a foot and a half. It's pretty long. Cubit in length. He bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. It's not in a sort of exterior sheath, it's hidden. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal, you remember that, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, the king, commanded silence. All his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he, Eglon, arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into the belly, into his belly. And the hilt, kind of the handle part of the sword, also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. You with me so far? <laughs> and when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself, using the bathroom, in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. It's a very earthy story. <laughs> but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, Mr. Eglon, and uh, there lay their Lord dead on the floor. All right, let's pause there for a moment. Uh, now, almost everybody agrees that this story is intended to be mocking of Eglon. Now, how exactly it's mocking him is, is a little bit up to debate, but let's begin by looking at the two main characters in this story. The first one is Eglon, the king of Moab. Moab is kind of southern part bordering Israel in the promised land. If you read your Bible, you know that Moab is a perpetual enemy of God's people. Right now, Eglon is their king, and he's a very large man. Verse 17, now Eglon was a very fat man. We've got to deal with that. Uh, last year in the, on the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, there was controversy off the field, and it all surrounded a player named Alejandro Kirk. If you know the Blue Jays, you might know uh, Captain Kirk, as they call him. And Alejandro, is, he, he doesn't look anything like a typical ball player as opposed to the sort of tall, lean pitching machine. He's, he's very short in stature. He's stocky and thick, and, and he's, just a, he's, a, he's a larger man. And there was some radio host somewhere in Canada that was just saying, you know, he's not really an athlete, just look at him. And this is where I first was exposed to the term of fat shaming, 
which is the idea that you, you mock someone who's overweight with the intention of you know, guilting them into going on a diet and losing weight or whatever. That is not what is happening here. <laughs> I want to be clear that that's not the purpose of this story. So don't, don't open your Bible here and say, you know, go on a diet or you might get assassinated by heart disease. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's doing terrible things with the text. Eglon's obesity would have been very rare and the only reason he could be so large was because of his prosperity. He was a very fat man because he was living off of Israel. He took, it took extreme wealth to gain extreme weight. And the living off of Israel is actually what's taking place in this event. A delivery is being made to Eglon. Did you remember that word tribute? A tribute is, is an annual tax where you have to bring a huge percentage. In an occupied land, you've got to bring um, livestock and grain and wheat and money, and you've got to do that every year. So basically, you get invaded by a foreign power, and they say, hey, we'll let you live, but guess what? Taxes just went up. It's 70 80% now. No, no more of this 10% stuff. What would happen to the land over 18 years with that kind of taxation? Well, you would just get more and more and more poverty, disease, sickness, right? It's, it's just a, it's a, it's a scourge. But if you fail to bring the tribute, they just come in with their army and kill a bunch more of you. Verse 14, the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. 18 years of crippling taxation. And Eglon is there living high on the hog off the backs of God's people. Israel is being forced to serve an oppressor. But go all the way back to verse 12. Did you notice what it said? Yahweh strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Who strengthened Eglon, the overweight king of Moab? Yahweh did. God's chosen nation, Israel, was doing evil in God's eyes, so God empowered an evil nation to come in and ravage them. We, we, we knew this was coming because of Judges chapter 2. Just turn back there for a moment to verse 13. They abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So, verse 14, Judges 2, verse 14, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Who handed them over to the plunderers? Who sold them into the hand of the plunderers? It was God who was doing this. And Eglon is a plunderer. To plunder another people is to violently acquire their property and goods. It's to steal their stuff um, using force in a time of war or in a time of occupation. And Eglon is plundering so much that he grows quite large. Now, when you put all of that together, that means God may indeed use evil people to discipline the people that he loves. God may use evil people to discipline the people that he loves. Do you ever stop to ask the Lord 
if that person who's making your life miserable at work was sent by God to humble you and turn your heart fully to him? Have you ever considered that your current discomforts might be God's way of prying your fingers off your idols? That's Eglon. Let's look at Ehud. Don't confuse the two. Ehud is from Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin. His unique physical trait is that he's left-handed. That becomes important as the story develops. He's a man of uh, some reputation. He's a leader of some kind, certainly reliable. He's been entrusted with the tribute to be delivered to Eglon. Failure, if he runs off with the tribute, then you know, the whole nation suffers, so they trust him. And we also know that he's called. He was raised up to his work by Yahweh. Verse 15, the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And that should make you just sort of go, wait a second here. We just read that God strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, the bad guy, and now you're telling me the same God raised up his assassin. And I would answer, yes. And there's a bit of warning there for you. It is a terrible mistake to think that if God uses you to discipline his people by your sins, that you are somehow excused from the guilt of those sins. Oh, no, not at all. While God used overweight Eglon to discipline Israel, Eglon stood 100% responsible and guilty before God for the sins that he committed against Israel. Maybe you're here today as a family member of one of the Christians here, and you've been tempted to think, you know, I'm going to keep mocking and belittling my sister, my friend, whoever, for their Christianity, just to keep them humble. Well, I'd say be careful, Eglon. You may not be inflating your belly, but you're enlarging your guilt. And your day of reckoning will come. Of course, there, there's a way to be spared that guilt. There's a way to be spared in that day of reckoning. There's a way to be spared for all your sins that you've committed against God's people, and that's to repent. The Bible word repent simply means you look to God and you say, you know, God, I agree with you. That mocking, that, that, that harsh words, the anger, all those things I did, uh, my lusts, my, my thefts, all these things, they're sins. They're not just, you know, moral weaknesses. They're sins, and sins deserve death. I agree with you, God. I'm going, to, I'm going to renounce those sins. I'm, going to, I'm just going to put it in my heart to try to never do those things again. But I, I'm also, I'm going to look to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the one, God's own son, whom he sent into the world to take the penalty that all your sins deserved, my sins deserved, everybody, and he puts them on Christ. And as Jesus suffers and dies in our place, he bears the awful wrath of God in eternity of hell on the shoulders of Jesus on that cross. Only he could do it. No mere man could do that. I can't die for you. Only Christ could die for you. 
And so we put all our confidence, all our faith, all our hope in Jesus. This is what it means to become a Christian. You, you agree with God, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and the only Savior you're ever going to provide is Jesus. There's not going to be a future Savior. There's no, like, sub-Saviors or equal Saviors, like, just pick a religion, whack-a-mole thing, like, whatever one you get. No, it's, it's just Jesus. He's the only Savior the world's ever going to know. Have you turned to him? Have you trusted in him? This is the only way to be right with God. And back to Ehud, I told you that he was called by God. We see more of this in verse 18. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So there was a whole group of them. He sends them away. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. I have a secret message for you, O king. Later on, verse 20, I have a message from God for you, king. Now, I assume that Ehud is telling the truth here, that he had been given a message by God to deliver to the foreign occupier. He had a sharp message to deliver to the man who was starving Israel. But this part that I'm about to say is just a guess on my part, speculation, okay? It would not surprise me if Ehud got that message from God at Gilgal, and I'll tell you why. Gilgal was the spot when, under Joshua, Israel, remember, they crossed the Red Sea with Moses, but they crossed the Jordan River with Joshua, right? And as they come up out of the river, they grab 12 stones, and they put them down on the side. That's Gilgal. They've come into the promised land. Manna stops, time to take the promised land. Let me read it to you from Joshua 4. Yahweh said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of Yahweh came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. I'm in Joshua 4:19. if you want to follow along. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For Yahweh, your God, dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as Yahweh, your God, did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of Yahweh is mighty, that you may fear Yahweh, your God, forever. All right? So that's Gilgal. Here's Ehud. Gets to Gilgal, what did, he, what did we see? The idols of Gilgal. So now, every Israelite, when they pass by the 12 stones, if the 12 stones are there, has to pass by a whole whack of idols, Judges 3.19. More importantly, Ehud is passing by all the idols having just dropped off an annual supply of everything that really belonged to Israel. 
And I think it was maybe the combination of those things. I just wondered when, when he saw those 12 stones, if they were still there, were those 12 stu- stones being, you know, was there, was there a, a, an idol that had been put on the top of them as a kind of domination, a, a show of force maybe? Was it, was it passing by that spot where Yahweh spoke to Ehud or, or Ehud just called out to Yahweh? Somehow God said to him, turn around and give Eglon a pointed message with that sword on your left leg. Verse 19, he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. We can't know for certain, that, but we do know for certain that Gilgal and those idols are mentioned twice, uh, here in verse 19, again in verses 26 to 28. And that landmark by the river that identified the first steps into the promised land, it became a new point of demarcation. For Ehud's gonna turn around here and go back to be the assassin, then he's also gonna gather here with his army and tell the army of the Moabites, Eglon's army, you shall not pass. So verse 26, Ehud escaped while they delayed This is after the assassination. He passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived, he he sounded the trumpet in the hill country. Everybody comes down. There's a great battle at the fords of the Jordan, which is likely that very same spot. And they kill 10,000. And Moab is pushed out of the land. The land has rest for 80 years. It's a great delivery. But now we have to talk about assassinations. I suppose the first thing to think about is the morality of assassinating a person. Now, before you hike to the top of your moral high ground, just to level us all down a little bit, I might just ask you what you've been watching on screens for the last year. Uh, You know, we tend to watch a lot of violence. So let's not be hypocrites. Before we claim that Ehud is doing something immoral, if, okay, we'll just leave it at that. (laughs) We're not given a lot of details in the story about the motivation of Ehud's heart or even the instructions he received or did not receive from Yahweh. But you gotta keep a couple of things in mind. The first one is this. Eglon, the king of Moab, had invaded the land that belongs to Israel. And he is systematically destroying the people of God by squeezing every last drop of life out of them. He's an evil ruler. Near the end of World War II, the Allies launched Operation Manna. You know what that was about? Things were so bad in the Netherlands People were starving to death. Millions of people were starving to death. And so the war was not quite over. And what the Allies did is they arranged these food drops, just this plane after plane after plane, dropping, parachuting food in so the Dutch could eat and survive. Now that suffering of our Dutch friends was the direct result of Adolf Hitler. Would it have seemed justified to you if someone had managed to assassinate Hitler. Second thing, since Eglon was an invader, that meant Moab and Israel are at war, even though Israel's currently occupied, and that meant the terms of war are at play. To just walk up and stab a man with your secret sword in the marketplace, that's murder. But to eliminate your enemy in war, that's war. 
Now, I'm not going to try and tackle just war theory, but I think it's fair to say that since Ehud was raised up by God, carried a message from God, was empowered to lead the people by God, follow after me, verse 28, for Yahweh has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand, then I think we can be sure that he was doing the very will of God, and that will was good and perfect and true. And although the assassination of a man sounds very offensive to our Western ears, Ehud was enacting the righteous judgment of God on Eglon. So Ehud, I would argue, is doing God's will. And that includes Eglon's embarrassing destruction in his own bathroom. Now, the vocabulary of this story is difficult in the original language. I'm not good enough in the language to make conclusions. I depend on the books. That might be because... um, When I said earlier that this is a story that's mocking, it seems like there's some double entendre, like maybe even sexual innuendos and things, and there's, there's, just, there's just a lot happening in the language that is probably most of us lost to us by the centuries, but we know the story is made to look, make Eglon look bad, really, really bad and pathetic. The large man dies beside a toilet with a sword, a foot-long sword, sticking out of his groin, lying in his own pool of excrement. That's bad. That is not the glorious battlefield death of some great ruler. It is the inglorious end of a self-serving dictator. Not every self-serving dictator gets taken out and shot like Ceausescu, say, in Romania. But every evil ruler will exist in shame forever if they do not repent and turn to Christ. I want you to notice that the book of Judges doesn't end here. Verse 30 doesn't say, and the land had rest from then on. But the land had rest for 80 years. And 80 years of peaceful and quiet living, that's pretty awesome, but it came to an end. Ehud could solve Israel's hardships, but Ehud could not change Israel's heart. Not even a left-handed savior can break us free from the tyranny of sin. That takes the nailed, scarred hands of Jesus Christ. And until you rely on Christ alone, you will follow Israel in their cycle of failure. I mean, you might have these moments of you know, moral reformation in your life. I stopped smoking, I'm, I'm paying my bills, I'm, I'm not swearing anymore. But in all likelihood, you will slip back into some of these things again. And even if you don't, just stopping those things is not the way to get to heaven. You need a savior and not a CV. You need, you need someone to trust in to get you into heaven. And that takes us to number three, Shamgar. I had a great name, Shamgar. How come nobody's named their kids Shamgar yet? A humble man who humiliated an adversary. This is verse 31. That's all he gets, one verse. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. I thought about just having everybody write down what you think an ox goad is, and then like it would be a quiz, but I won't. Um, Let's talk about the Philistines first of all. The Philistines don't belong here. They're not native Canaanites. I remember, go back to Judges 1 for a moment, verse 18. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron with its territory. Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron are three of the five 
um, fiefdoms, cities of the Philistines. We know that from later, the five cities of the Philistines. But when Israel comes in the promised land, they go into those cities. They're not, the Philistines aren't there. They, they get the Canaanites out of those cities. But they did that thing where they conquer the city, but they don't repopulate it. So by the time you get to Judges chapter 3, verse 1, now these are the nations that Yahweh left to test Israel by them. That is in all Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. Uh, these are the nations, verse 3, of the five lords of the Philistines. And these are the cities that they live in. Now, we don't know exactly where the Philistines came from, but we have a pretty good idea. Most people believe that um, these Philistines came from, sorry, my folks, there's, yeah, yeah, Greek, Greece, all, all you Greeks, you're Philistines. <laughs> Uh, but they came from that area of Greece and they jumped in their boats and for whatever reason they came down south. They tried invading, uh, there's some historical record, they tried to invade in Egypt, that didn't work so well. And then they come and lo and behold, here's five empty cities on the Mediterranean on the western border of Israel. So that's who the Philistines are. They are people that live in Canaan that basically come from Greece. But then there's Shamgar. Shamgar, who's going to spend part of his life killing 600 of those Philistines with a pointed stick. What if he has a pointed stick? Uh, is, is prob he's probably not an Israelite. So he, he doesn't have a Jewish name. Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. He's called the son of Anath. Anath is a Canaanite deity, a hunting goddess who shows up here and there in the, you know, the fable of Baal. So it doesn't even seem like Shamgar was kosher, if you know what I mean. And even if he was, his name and his heritage would betray Israel's intermarriage with the Canaanites. So I want you to keep that fact in mind, but then look at the weapon that he uses, an ox goad. Okay, what do you think an ox goad is? An ox goat is uh, a stick. It's about eight feet long. Kids, if you're wondering, I'm six and a half, so go a little bit higher. And eight foot long stick that is pointed at one end. It's, it's just taken right into a very sharp point, And then it sort of funnels down to the other end where it's about six inches in diameter. It's almost like a big club. And you can imagine eight feet, you, like you're just picturing what that would be, a heavy thing, particularly heavy because attached to that thick end was an, was an iron shovel or spade. And it's presumed that you would sort of carry it under your arm as you've got your team of oxen and you give them a little, you know, yippee-i-o with the pointed end, let's go boys. Uh, that gets them going. But then you spin it around because you're, the blade of your, um, what's that thing called? I just said it. What? Oh, no, you're like, I can't hear anything anyway. Uh, the, the, yeah, the thing you pull behind. It's like I've completely blanked on a word. It's hilarious. A plow, thank you, yeah. That was weird. Uh, so he, he, takes, he takes the thick end and you sort of like, you scrape off the mud and stuff that would get on the edge of your plow. So, you know, spin back and forth. That's what an ox goad is. I think an ox goad makes for a formidable weapon, uh, even against swords and shields. I, I would just, I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I sit in my office, I'm like, how did you, I'm like Star Warsing the thing. Like, he's just got this huge eight-foot thing. The reason I'm pointing all that out is because in, through the book of Judges, you have these very odd weapons of deliverance. 
So we already saw Ehud with his secret footlong dagger. Shamgar's got his ox goad. Soon you're going to see Jael with her camping hammer. Gideon's trumpets and uh, vases. (laughs) The Thebesian woman's millstone. Samson using a donkey's jawbone. This is weird. And I think it's important to point out because it's good to remember that our God delights in using unorthodox means in order to help us to see that the rescue comes from him. It's not our weapons, not our skills, not our planning, not our ability, not even our ethnicity. We're not told if uh, Shamgar, Shammy, the Shamster, the Shammeister, we're not told if he ox-goaded the 600 Philistines by himself as the leader of an army all at once over many years, but we are told is at the end of verse 31, he also saved Israel. And why did he save Israel? Because Israel deserved it? No, because Yahweh, Yahweh's already told us why he keeps doing this back in Judges 2.18. For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Again, the, the groaning here, the calling out to God in verse 15, that's not the expression of repentance. It's just complaint. It's the whining and groaning of your eight-year-old on a hot summer day when the air conditioner in your car breaks and you got 400 more kilometers to drive and he's eating too many chicken nuggets. <laughs> well, you don't show that child pity because of their repentant and humble heart. They're groaning. They're whining. You show them pity because you're in covenant with them, your mom, your dad. You're the parent. And so God looks on the suffering of his people and all their moaning and their groaning, and he's got pity on them. He made a covenant with them. He's not going to let happen to Israel what happened to the Philistines. You know, after, after the years of David and Saul, the Philistines, they just disappear. No more Philistines today. Nobody can say, I'm a descendant of the Philistines. They're all gone, forgotten. But you look around this morning, and you will see that God kept his promise to Abraham. The true Israel of God, part of it sits right in this gym this morning. It's gathering all over the world on this day to worship him, the final and the true judge, deliverer, and savior. Look, I'm glad that my aunt was there when I needed her. She was an unlikely deliverer, an unlikely rescuer. But my, my aunt, she went the way of all the earth. We need a savior who lasts. And God has provided one. His method, his appearance, his weapon, all very unconventional. He had no stately form or appearance. He had no massive army of angels. He had a Roman cross. And yet his saving work was comprehensive, eternal, and perfect. We need a savior. And we got one, and his name is Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. There's much here for us, Father, to ponder and consider. Take what is best, work that into our hearts. Take what is folly, remove it from our minds. Most of all, show us Christ, how we love him, 
and how thankful we are that he will keep us to the end. Even in all our follies and misgivings, Lord Jesus, you're going to hold us fast. And for this we praise you. Amen.